It's another edition of the Cherries Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, your host, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist for The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, there's a lot going on, man. We got a lot to get to today. <laughs> what do you want to start yes. with, the Cavs? Sure. <laughs> All right. Let's get to it. So you predicted a 51 season for the Cavs, and they ended up with 51. And um, headed into the playoffs against the Knicks, Cavs are the number four seed. They're playing the number five seed. Knicks, all we know is game one right now. And game one is going to be Saturday at 6 p.m. at the Fieldhouse. Cavs, first time they won more than 50 games since, I think, 2016, 2017, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Terry, you want to talk about where you're at with the Cavs real quick, just an overview and how you're feeling okay. about things going to the playoffs? A couple of numbers for you. All right. The team that wins the first game of a seven-game seven series goes on to win the series. How, what percentage of the time? 74? Close, 76. Oh, right not there. bad. And the team that has the home court in game seven goes on to win that game. 86% of the time. I think it's 73. Oh, really? But yeah, they're both about the same. In other words, three out of four. Oh. Um, I remember the one year the Cavs played Orlando, and I, I can't remember LeBron's last or – no, I think it was the second last year, 09, the first go-around. And – Orlando just got through, I think, a real tough series with Boston. It might have been seven games. They came in, and the Cavs were waiting and waiting, and they stole that first game. And the Cavs won the second game, and LeBron made like a 30-footer. And that series won only five or six games, and they ended up getting beaten Orlando. It was like that first game. I mean, obviously, it's not over. You play other games. And LeBron's been in a lot of playoff series where he had lost the first games, came back to win. But it's significant, and that's why, you know, having a home court is significant too. So that's a key thing. And I, I'll just throw in one other thing, the fact that the Cavs are 1-3 and three against New York. I want to see them win that first game. I really do. I don't want that kind of – it shouldn't build or whatever, but stuff like that does. I think you're right, Terry. Um, you know, one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I, I, one of the one, something you see in Cleveland that I don't think you can say about every – sports town in America is that the, the head coaches of the various teams like are fans of each other and they support each other. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we've seen, we've seen Browns coaches wearing, um, you know, guardians baseball hats and, and showing up at games and Terry Francona goes to games. And over the last few days, JB Bickerstaff of the Cavs has been texting with Terry Francona and just saying, Hey, Hey, you know, this is, we're going to the playoffs. We have a young team. You had a young team last year going to the playoffs. What, what advice would you maybe be able to pass along in terms of how to negotiate this. And both JB and Tito wouldn't really talk about what they talked about because that's between them. But I found that interesting. And it got me thinking, Terry, if you were Tito, what advice would you have given to JB Bickerstaff about going into this playoff series with a young team and, and how to kind of work your way through the playoffs and what it's like? Well, before we get into like why the coaches are together, the, the three uh, pro teams in town have this kind of alliance. Um, it was informal, but it was during the uh, uh, things that went on with the racial upheaval in, in 2020, where they began to set up formal meetings with each other, Kobe Altman, Chris Antonetti, Mike Chernoff, uh, Mike Ganzi, uh, and Andrew Barry, and 
And then I think the coaches got involved uh, on different kind of Zoom calls and things. So they got to know each other on a, a personal level that way. And also, I, I do think that when you're in Cleveland, there's just sort of more of a it's more of an underdog mode. It's not like when you're in Chicago, there's a rivalry between the Cubs and the and the, and the White Sox or New York. You know, this is you're in Cleveland. This is it. So you want everybody in Cleveland wants to win for Cleveland and for that. So I, I think that's where it starts. Secondly, Francona is a huge, huge basketball fan. He averaged over 20 points a game in high school. Uh, and I also heard he shot a lot <laughs> in high school. But then again, he, made, he would tell you I've shot a lot and I made a lot. So, uh, and when they, when he, then he went to Arizona, and of course he lives in Tucson, and he is a big fan of the University of Arizona basketball team, goes to some of their practices. So he, he follows that, watches the Cavs on TV a lot. Um, and I thought it was interesting for JB to reach out, probably because they have a relationship through some of these other things, because – you know, Frank kind of joked about he has some ideas how to defend the pick and roll or whatever. But really, so it's an interesting thought. What do you tell a guy in another sport going into the playoffs? You know, JB had been one series in the playoffs with Houston. That's it. Uh, by the way, I think Thibodeau's had something like 63 playoff games he's been in with three different teams. Um Francona is like Mr. Playoffs, if you really look at it. He's been a favorite. He's been a long shot. He's been a big market. He's been a small market. Um, so I'll let you start. I'm going to throw it back to you, and then we'll see what you say. And if you were uh, Francona, you would tell JB. Well, one of the things I would tell him is, and I think JB is already pretty good at this, but he, the way his body language plays in the minds of the players means a lot. And mm-hmm. we don't see JB going off on the sidelines a lot. He'll get into the refs a little bit, but he'll do it in a very low key kind of biting way where it's like, you know, you blew that one or something like mm-hmm. that. But I would tell him how you be, how you are reflected in your body language and your tone is going to be scrutinized more than ever by your players. And you've got to show them that you're leading the way and that there's a way to win the series. And what that looks like is going to change, I think, as the seven games go along. But I think that's that, – and that's what Tito does really well, too. Like, he he sets the right tone at the right time, both in the clubhouse and out. I think JB does that already. But sometimes in the playoffs when things ramp up, you need to remember what you're about and what you want to be. And I, that's I, that's what I think Tito would advise him. But what do you say? Well, Francona would also believes you don't want to embarrass your players publicly. Uh, I mean, even the day – that Trevor Bauer heaved the ball over the center field wall <laughs> in in Kansas City. Bauer went out or whatever, and Tito did want to confront him. And what he did, he took him down the dugout, you know, the the tunnel underneath the dugout there. And I heard it was really loud. He really lit into him. I mean, the players heard it, but it wasn't seen on the cameras or anything like that. And if anything, called for guys throwing things and all that, that would have been it. But he just felt he couldn't lose his cool. Francona is the master of just win today's game. Tomorrow will take care of itself in a playoff situation. So in his mind, if that meant bringing Andrew Miller in the fourth inning or whatever had needed to be done, you do it. And I'll figure out tomorrow's rotation or whatever tomorrow. So that would probably be, 
what he also would advise, you know, do all you can to win today's game. Because, you, you're, you, yeah, it's best of seven. But as we just rolled out the stats there, you lose the first game. Okay, well, three out of four of those teams. Because generally, that team that would be losing their first game would be the home home court team. And, you know, then if, if we're talking about Cleveland in that sense, then you're in big trouble. So that would be the other thing he would talk about. Do what you need to do uh, to, to win this game. And then, you know, look at things elsewhere. And also, Francona would probably say, Play the way you always have. You know, this is not a time to get too tricky. Mm-hmm. Other than, you know, you might be a little bit quicker to pull pitchers than that. And maybe in this case, you know, you might be a little quicker to take somebody who's shooting. You know, Chetty Osmond's out there instead of missing five shots in a row. He's missed two, and he looks like he's just running in circles. You may pull him quicker. Maybe probably yeah, about that, it. That's interesting, Terry, because, you know, not every minute of every NBA playoff series is the same. And you, you to look through a baseball analogy, I mean, back in 2016, the Guardians kind of invented the high leverage situation yeah. pitching deal with, with Miller, like you said. And uh, they bring him in in, in, in whatever inning to get a, a key out at a certain time. So in basketball, that might mean it's, a, it's an important stretch of game one. And, and JB's like, we got to win this one. I'm playing – Donovan Mitchell, 46 minutes today or something, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the basketball equivalent is what you're saying. Yeah, or you take him out for a minute and bring him back in right away. Right. You know, you, you, you take the uh, – take him out for a minute or two, here comes the timeout, then you bring him back in. You know, you try to increase it that way. Um, I mean, one thing, I, if I were JB, this is more of a – just a general thing is you need total team rebounding. Those guards got to get on the boards and help because the Knicks crashed the boards like crazy. And we've seen them um, hurt the Cavs. In fact, the Cavs are not as good a rebounding team as it seems they should be with their size at times. And I think part of it is the guards uh, are not just not as helpful on the boards in some some games where they ought to be. So I'll be that, that'll be uh, fun to watch, too. I mean, there's so much going on with these things. I, I mean, I'm just fascinated to see it. That I'm so glad the Cavs are relevant. When you're 51 and 31, you're relevant. When you got home court in the playoffs, you're relevant. You know, you matter. Yeah, and the four or five matchup is always good, and and the the Cleveland teams involved. So, so before I get your prediction for the series, Terry, I, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on a matchup that you're really excited to see in this Knicks-Cavs series series something you're looking forward to seeing a, a maybe a position group versus a position group a player versus a player uh, what, what are you looking forward to well i'm assuming that uh, mobile will cover randall most of the time the interesting thing about randall is he is left-handed and players now they'll have a they'll be drilled into their head he's left-handed he's left-handed he's left-handed nonetheless the natural inclination of many players whether they're in pro or high school is to cover the guy to his right because most players they play are right-handed lefties are pretty good having an inherent advantage um, to that and so that's something i want to see how mobile handles that because yeah you could put Allen on it but you know Randall likes to go outside make jumpers and Mobley 
you know, the last time I saw he was ranked first or second in contesting three-point shots. I mean, it's remarkable how he moves all over the court defensively. And then to flip the other way around, if assuming Randall is covering Mobley, can Mobley do enough offensively to wear him down? One of the ways you wear down uh, the opposing player who scores is to come at him, make him play defense. And so they want to see if they'll do that. And if they end up doing what they did in that last game against the Knicks, letting the Knicks run them up and down, play a 130-point game, and poor Evan Mobley was just kind of staggering between the two foul lines, took only eight shots in that game, um, that's on coaching. That's on the coaching staff. They cannot let the Knicks dictate the pace of the game that fast. They're going to have to – deal with that remember nobody plays 80 point games anymore we're talking about playing games like 100 to 110 not 125 to 135 and there's a big difference in that so that watch the tempo of the game yeah and both teams do like to play slow so the fact that the Knicks tried to, to pick it up that I wonder if it was like a stress test you know yeah like when you put somebody on a treadmill it's like all right let's see if you can do this and I wonder if what they took out of that game if they will try to push it, because they usually don't. So I think they probably looked at that and said, all right, how do the Cavs not want to play? Let's make them play that way. Yep. And even though, yeah, the Knicks can play slower, and they tend to play a lot of isolation stuff on offense, um, I don't want them running up and down. I saw it. I didn't like how that looked in that game. I know it was a regular season game, but also, you know, it was a weird, I think, one of the games that the Cavs lost, it was a game under 100. Uh, to the Knicks. The the scores have been odd, but that last game, I think you were correct in that Tom Thibodeau decided, let's try this, because if we could play that way with them, uh, we could kind of negate that size advantage that they have, and then create a lot of scramble situations for rebounds, longer rebounds, and that stuff that could help us uh, on the boards. So I was listening to Hayden Grove and Chris Fedor on our Cavs podcast um, today, and and they were talking about like, all right, Donovan Mitchell's going to get his. What are the Knicks going to do to to slow down Darius Garland? And, and that's what I want to see. Like, are they going to pick him up full court? Are they going to, you know, how it is in the playoffs, Terry? There's a lot of teams that ever rule no dunks mm-hmm. and, and and no run, no free shots down the lane. And you're going to see some rougher fouls than you see in in the middle of November in the playoffs. And I think they're going to try and get really physical with him and see how he holds up. Um, I mean, the so I'm interested can, in that. Yeah, to see what right exactly what Garland can do. Right. Um, and you know, I'm trying to get the numbers in my head. I think it's 39 playoff games that Donovan has played. He's averaged over 28 points. So he's had a 50 point game in the playoffs. So you could see that he can almost get his shot anytime he wants. Garland is the kind of guy, though, if he gets hot from the outside, that can swing a game quickly in the Cavs' favor. Flip side, if he's missing his three-pointers three or four in a row, you know, that's uh, uh, that's a problem. Now, the people will dwell on the fact, okay, they're not covering a Coro or whoever the small forward is. They haven't covered him all years anyway. That should not be anything that's a big surprise. Uh, I would like to see if Levert can help them. He's played much better of late the last two months um, because you're going to see more, you know, more guys need to create their own shots. I remember talking to Stan Van Gundy, who coached in the NBA for years, several teams. And we were talking about the playoffs, and Stan said, you know, during the regular season, you give a player a, a tape, 
you know, with DVD or whatever it was back then with maybe 10 minutes of stuff to look at. You give him a rec- scouting report. He goes, they may look at it. They may not. They may sort of glance at it. They may leave it on the table. He goes, but in the, in the playoffs, he said, believe me, these guys do not want to look bad in the playoffs. They're taking that stuff home. They're paying attention to it. And so that is another reason. And you keep playing teams over and over again. Remember, football season, when you go to the playoffs in regular season, it's not a big difference. You're still playing one game. Even in baseball, granted, you don't play seven in a row against a team, but you have a four-game series, sometimes even a five. So that, but there's, yeah, I know now the NBA has this two-game series, but there's nothing close to replicating uh, the playoffs compared to the regular season in the NBA as opposed to those other two sports. Uh, probably it's more like hockey in that regard that um, they don't, they have with it back to back in hockey. Is that about the most they have? Or? In the playoffs, they go 2-2, two, 1-1-1. Two, one, one, no, no, one. no. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, regular season. Oh, regular season. Yeah, sometimes two in a row, but never more than that. So that probably creates a lot of similarities between the two sports. It's much different, at least a different style of coaching. Oh, you're right. Like, in, in both, Terry, no mismatch will go unexploited. Mm-hmm. Like throughout a seven-game series, you're right. And then they want to see when you counter how you handle that. I remember um, probably the biggest victory the Cavs had in the playoffs during the Lenny Wilkins era was when they knocked off Boston in 92. That was in the second round of the playoffs. Um, what happened there was in games, it was a game seven in Cleveland, they blew them out. But game six, Boston comes out and they put Bird at the high post and they're running all these like 1961 cuts off him and everything else. They got up quick on them and the Cavs never did catch up. Well, they tried it in game seven. The Cavs were all over that and, and took that away. And and Boston at that point was an older team breaking down and the Cavs were on the rise. Uh, and it, it ended up being a blowout there. But, it, you know, you would think a lot of the playoff games would be very close and tightly contested. But you can see some of these games that really get out of hand quickly in the playoffs. And they'll swing from game to game on who blows whom out. So lots of fun stuff to watch. All right, Terry, moment of truth. The Cavs are 31-10 and 10 at home, yep. but they have many guys. Let's see, Garland, Okoro, Stevens, Wade, never been to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared Allen and Levert, I think, have very limited playoff experience. I think they're so, one series each or something like that. Yeah, I know, I know so, Allen is one series. And given all that, um, you're picking the Cavs? Yeah, Cavs in seven. Why seven. not? I'm going to go Cavs in seven, too. Chris Fedor said Cavs in seven, and a big reason for me is those numbers you just said, game yeah. one and game seven. So, I want to see a win in game one, though. I don't really want to get that going the wrong. Of course, the series is not over, but I just – like if you have LeBron or someone like that, there aren't too many, kind of like it really isn't over until it's over. But if you don't – now, I – you know – Donovan is a superstar, but he's not that that kind of player. Um, you're in trouble. So that's why you want to win that opening game. And being a young team, especially true. So yeah. got to keep the belief high. So, All right, Terry, let's take a break. Oh, I thought I'd throw this in. This was interesting. I just, it's just a quick stat. This was the first time, Terry, since 1969-70 that no team – was held under 80 points in an NBA game. Wow. Isn't that something? Since and when was it? Since 1969-70, there was not one game where a team was held 70. under 80 points. 
So they wanted more scoring um, that, you know, with the, with the rule changes last few years where they're getting rid of the, the yeah. grabbing and the kind of the, the you know, the, the cheap stuff inside where you can't really, uh, and it's really opened up the scoring. And so that, that was an interesting stat that I thought I would throw in. So oh, I didn't know there that. You go. And I'm trying yeah. to think back to 6970, what was going on. Um, see, it's hard for me, even then as old as I am, because the Cavs didn't start till 70, 71. So what, and back then there was a little, pro basketball on TV. If it was, it was usually Chamberlain versus Russell. So there was, and there was not no three a lot point to line, right? Oh no. Yeah. No, you know, Only the ABA, the ABA. Had, <laughs> the ABA had it, but talk about playing in a, in a dark tunnel where nobody could find you. Uh, when those Virginia squires or whoever they were back then were playing, um, that was hard to watch to find them. All right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, we'll talk about the guardians who had a nice win over the Yankees last night, but the pitching staff, it's early, and they're already facing injuries. How are they going to recover from that? We'll talk about that. we got some Browns to get into. we got some good Hey Terry questions this week, and we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell, Terry Pluto. All right, Terry, time to get into the Guardians. Seven and four, first place in the AL Central. They had a nice win over the Yankees last night. They've been playing some really tight games and finding a way to win some of them late. But, and you've been writing about this the last couple of days, we're not even halfway into April. Already the pitching staff is down. Tristan McKenzie, shoulder problem. They put him on the 60-day injured list. Uh, Savali is on the 15-day injured list. That's two-fifths of the starting rotation, and Savali is going to be out probably six to eight weeks. Given the Guardians' history of finding pitching, are you worried about things right now? And, and if not, who are you looking to take these innings, and, and, and which guys should fans keep an eye on? Well, the remarkable thing last year is how they got so little out of Savali and Plezak, and they still won 92 games. I think they were combining something like 12 and 18 and ERA closer to five than four even. So that this is where you're going to be sorting through because the top prospects they have, they don't want to bring up right now. Uh, that's Gavin Williams, who's in double A, and Tanner Beebe, who's in triple um, A, because both are only in their second pro seasons. So I, they don't want to just right away pull them up. And, you know, the people like Daniel Espino. I, I really don't talk about Daniel Espino anymore. I wrote a long piece kind of going through all these different prospects. You see, he's made four starts since opening day of 2020. I mean, until this guy gets out there and pitches like six weeks in a row, uh, there's really not much to say. And, and a lot of, like a lot of high school pitches, pitchers drafted high, these guys seem to get hurt. I mean, even McKenzie, who was a high school pitcher, has some R problems in the in the minors, and you know he's got this shoulder thing now. And granted, other guys get hurt. I mean, Savali's a college pitcher; he's hurt all the time. So they're they're going through a bunch of them. You know, they're really intrigued to see what Xavier um, uh, Curry can do. I think he's kind of a classic Guardians pitcher, where you look at him and go, that he's not a guy with outstanding gifts in terms of how hard he throws or even a super pitch but you know he competes he throws it over the plate um he has poise uh, they're big on hunter gaddis now we'll see how that goes tonight against the yankees it's a real test but that was the guy along with tim heron that carl willis told me in the sp- middle of spring training these two guys were to watch because i was we were talking about who to watch uh, Connor pilkington to me he looked heavy in spring training uh 
Um, they don't want to talk about it, which tells me I'm probably right. And, <laughs> you know, he did not pitch well in the, in the spring, and he got hammered his first start down there. I mean, this guy, had he really come in, shape, in camp shape and ready to go and pitched well in spring training, he would have made the roster. They took Curry over him. You know, they and heck, they couldn't even put him in the bullpen. They took Heron over him because they just felt that uh, he just didn't look ready. Uh, I'm so I'm looking at you were talking about Gaddis and you know this Peyton Benefield that they had got in here they got for the for Jordan Lupo. But you know, I remember I remember like when they called up Savali, Plezak, or like who were they a number of years ago? Bieber we knew was coming because Bieber was just piling up all kinds of numbers in the minors. Uh, but those other guys back uh, from that 2016 draft were not that highly regarded. And, you know, they got a lot of mileage out of them uh, at the time. So uh, this is an organization that thrives on pitching, and they're going to be tested. Yeah, and it's just been disappointing because, you know, you see McKenzie, you see Savali. I mean, Savali's had injury problems, but you, you knew McKenzie was in for a good yeah. season until that uh, terrace injury came along in his shoulder. So that that's going to stress the team. But one guy that has been a real pleasant surprise and has probably exceeded expectations is um, is Zanino. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to find his stats. Um, Mike Zanino batting three twenty, on base percentage of four thirty three, six forty slugging percentage. And boy, for we've we've gotten so many letters, Terry, about why can't the Guardians find catchers who can hit? They finally appear to have found one, and he's off to a great start. What have you seen How many strikeouts so does he have for bats? He's got one homer with four RBIs, and he's got five walks and eight strikeouts. Yeah, and that's good for him because he, you know, he strikes out a lot. And I would not count on him continuing to hit for an average, but uh, you could see the strength on the doubles, and so it's it's nice to see that. My big concern on Zanino is balls in the dirt. They've been getting – maybe we're just spoiled after Roberto Perez and Austin Hedges and uh, a couple of the other catchers they had over the years. But that has been a, a – some of these I've seen, he's just kind of backhanded the ball. I mean, get your body in front. Slide in front. Keep it in front of you. And we saw him, Terry. We were sitting together at opening day on the press box, and and they, they were stealing on him. His mechanics yeah. just didn't look like they're back yet. And not just blocking the ball, but – even just uh, his footwork thrown down to second base, mm-hmm. it just looked a little slow and a little maybe not as tidy as he would want it. And I, I, they're going to be working with him on that stuff, you'd imagine. I mean, the good thing is I'm hearing that the pitchers are connecting with him and game calling and all that. I mean, that's the other big part of it. Um, so, by the way, I have a suggestion for teams like facing the Guardians when they get tired of the Guardians stealing all the bases on them, like they stole four on the Yankees. Uh-huh. This would be like one of the new rules. All right, so Jimenez, remember, stole a base. This is where the idea came from. I think he was stolen base three or four of the night. And I said to Daryl Ryder from uh, 92.3, the fan, I said, they should just stop the game. The Yankees should just point to second. Just send him down there. Let him have <laughs> second base. This way you won't worry because they were almost throwing the ball into the outfield anyway. you know. So that way you won't have the bad throw. Just get it over with. Send him to second. You know he's there. And then you could just move the game right along. The intentional steal. Be like if Ricky Henderson steal. was on first yeah, base. As opposed yeah. to the even, you know, they say indifference. No, this is like, not a dis. I don't even want to try. <laughs> I like and that. also because be- the fact 
they are driving these other teams nuts. When are they going to go? And they're going to go on this pitch or that pitch. And, of course, the new rules about throwing over a couple times uh, play into that. And, you know, you see straws running like crazy. And, uh, Jose, basically almost everybody except uh, maybe Zanino and Josh Bell are liable to take off any time. Yeah, and imagine if they if they adopted your rule, Terry, the intentional steal, we could cut another few minutes off the ball game. And yeah. Yeah, there you go. Another another time-saving less, idea. Less stress. <laughs> That's but right. But it really got to like, you guys are so bad at this anyway. Why why try? Yeah, just take it. Just take it. <laughs> then if you want to walk the guy, he's that free. You want to do that, put the other guy on or whatever, you know. So, um, Terry, I wanted to ask you about Oscar Gonzalez and what you're seeing from him and also Josh Bell, both off to slow starts. And the Guardians hate to make knee-jerk decisions. They like to let guys work things out, but both of them are off to a slow start. Oscar was not in the lineup Monday night um, against the Yankees. I don't know if it was a one-game thing or if they're trying to let him work on his swing. When we saw him on opening day, his swing, I think your word was loopy, looked a little loopy. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might be working with him on, on some fundamentals. Um, Josh Bell, well, I can just mm. run through the numbers here real quick, Terry, if you want. Yeah. Josh Bell has played in 10 games. He's batting 079 with a 250 on base percentage and 079 slugging percentage. And Oscar Gonzalez has played in eight games. He's batting 161, uh, slugging 226. So, he, what's Oscar got? A double or something? Or Yeah, Oscar's got a triple. And that is his only extra base hit. So yeah. He's, yeah, in eight games, he's basically five for 31. Okay. Um, um, so anyway, how, how do you, if you're the Guardians, how do you, yeah, how do you manage these two guys in terms of at-bats, playing time? Um, you know, there's Will Brennan is, is, has saved the Guardians a couple times already. In the, right. You know, and he's given you some good production. What do you do here? Okay. I don't know what you do at Bell. I haven't seen enough. I just have it. Uh, I don't know his game. And other than I look at that swing and I see a lot of holes, but I doubt that that swing is a whole lot different than it has been in the past. Um, He is drawing some walks. This reminds me a little bit of like early season Carlos Santana when he was barely hitting 100, but he was walking some. But you go and you're not seeing a lot of line drives or anything either that you're saying, oh, you know, I feel good about that. Because I remember earlier in the year, Brennan, while his average wasn't very high, was hitting the ball hard. And Tito was saying that he thought, you know, Brennan's given really good at bats. He goes, I just don't look at the the numbers. I'm looking at, you know, how is he handling, looking on the pitches. Um, and I'm sure they have all their velocity, exit velocity off the bat stats to prove it. Now, with Oscar, what I see is where he used to take those outside pitches and hit them quite hard to the opposite field. He's just like reaching. He's almost like a man. Frankly, he reminds me of when I was at Benedictine, just kind of trying to get a bat on the ball and hitting these ridiculous dribblers. I mean, you, were, you, you felt so defensive up there. I don't understand what has happened to him in that. The fact that he swings the pitches out of the strike zone, and that is something that's haunted him his entire career, but it's never derailed him. Now, what could happen to him is what happened to uh, Michael Brantley and what happened to Jose Ramirez and what has happened to 85% of all big league players is that I'll go back to the minors. 85% of all players went back to the minors at least once. 
Jose, if you looked at his early first season, well, he came up real late in 2013. But then he opened in 2014, and the minors came up, played pretty well. But opened 15 in the big leagues, didn't hit, went back to the minors. Came up at the end. Then 2016 is when he had his breakthrough year. Michael Brantley went up and down a couple of times um, before he really put it together. So that's probably what's going to have to happen with Oscar um, unless he starts to shape it up quickly because he's he's not giving you a reason to believe. Of course, Bell isn't either, but Bell is a – Frank Cohen always says, Bell's got the baseball card. You know, you could look back in the back of it and see the numbers and say, okay, he'll, he'll probably get to that. Um, but I, I have to admit, I'm I'm discouraged on Oscar. Where last year, if you've been listening, people reading me, listening to podcasts, Oscar and Will Brennan were my guys. I was lobbying for both of them, um, and thank goodness they have Will Brennan hitting right now. And Brennan can hit lefties, so that's a they don't have to worry about platooning there. Terry, I was just curious about what Josh Bell has been seeing when he's been up there. So I was kind of looking on Baseball Savant, and it's interesting. He's seeing. 46.5% fastballs right now, which is the lowest percentage that he's seen in his entire career, which I thought was interesting. He's seeing 31.8% breaking balls, and that's the highest that he's ever seen in his career. Mm-hmm. And then they've got a third category for off-speed, and that's 21.8. But he's seeing more breaking pitches and fewer fastballs than at any point that he's seen since he's been in the major leagues. So take a, take a look at Gonzalez on that too while we're talking. I mean the the difficult thing for Bell is he played so poorly in August and September uh after he was traded to San Diego. Now he did play decent in the playoffs. I think he had three home runs in the postseason. But that's gotta be hanging over him a little bit. You know, that he ended the year basically on a real downturn for two months. Barely, I think he hit under 200 or barely did. Because Oscar's, Oscar's so strong. I mean, last year, those the exit velocity and everything, just and it matched the eye test. I mean, he, he mashed the ball. Remember, he was like Mr. Doubles because he would hit these liners, and they would just hit the grass and just take off and be at the wall before you knew it. All right, so Oscar is seeing 52.7% fastballs. That's higher than he's seen. Mm-hmm. Last year, he saw 49.8. He's seeing 34.9% breaking balls, and last year he saw 41.0 and 12.4 off speed, which is up from 9.3 last ah, year. So, so interesting. They, they are actually throwing in fewer breaking balls, I never would have believed that, and a few more fastballs. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, uh, they count off-speed pitches as a split finger, a change, a fork ball, or a screwball as off-speed, and they count mm-hmm. breaking pitches as slider, curve, Knuckleball, sweeper, slurve, or other. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, basically, and I'm glad they kind of break them down to three categories as opposed to six because it <laughs> right. just, it would, it would drive you nuts. So, what I believe they're doing is they're throwing the ball just out of the strike zone and he's just not taking good swings at it because he's not striking out a ton. He's just not hitting the ball with any authority. So, that's, this will be a challenge for uh, Chris Valeka, the, the hitting coach, who's, you know, done so well with so many of the hitters here to see if he could get him squared away. I mean, let's face it, a couple of years ago, remember, Andres Jimenez had to go back to the minors. And he opened the season with the team. And remember, he had played the year before in the big leagues with um, 
this is in 2021. Uh, 2020, he came up at the end of the year with the Mets and played with them during the COVID season. In 21, he opens the season, you know, as the uh, starting shortstop. And he ends up hitting so poorly, and they send him back to the minors. 21 is spent going up and down between Columbus and Cleveland. Then last year, spring training, he makes a team and takes off. So that's why even if we see Oscar or if you were to see another guy regress, don't write them off. But the other thing is you want to win a bunch of games right now. Well, and you're right. It's a good thing they have another option to put out there right now instead of two guys that mm-hmm. are struggling, which we've seen in the past. So, uh, And, you know, right. they, they like Arias, and they might even throw him in the outfield. They've, they've done that to just to, to get him some at-bats coming up. So they think he's a good athlete and can do that. Oh, it wouldn't be the first time we've seen a good athlete change positions in Cleveland, no. that's for sure. It's many, many times. So, all right, By Terry, the way, so- Ho- one more thing. Jose, <laughs> yeah, sure. pl- Jose played the outfield in 2016, like 20-some games. That's right. Because Jose was like, I'll play anywhere you want me to remember. He, he played second. He put, This is why we all, I love Jose because like, <laughs> he played second. He played short. He played third. He played left field. He slid head, head first in the first second base or any base you want. And he played the same way all the time. He got his money. He played the same way all the time. The only thing he asked is he got later in his career. He did ask Tito. He said, just give me one position because he found it more difficult to move around than than in the past. I think he felt he kind of earned that. So they just, remember, they went through all these third basemen anyway, so they just kind of put him there. And he'll be there a long time. Yep. It worked out. So, okay, second second game of the series against the Yankees tonight, then the third game tomorrow. Um, get out there if you can. The Guardians have really come up with some interesting ticket packages this season. I think there's a lot of options if you're interested in heading out there. Check it out. So, all right, Terry, you got a Browns question the other day. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Hey, Terry. I put out my list of teams on social media where I'd be willing to serve as a backup. Guess who's number one? You got it, Cleveland. <laughs> How about it, Terry? I look good in an orange helmet, signed Cam Newton. <laughs> well, he didn't send that email to me. I just kind of took it from his YouTube where he was begging teams <laughs> to sign him as a backup. And on top of that, he listed 12 teams in order, and Cleveland was number one. There you go. It's sort of like uh, – Cam did not play at all last year. He played five games in 21. Um, one NFL told me that that ship didn't just sail. That ship might have sunk. Oh, uh, yeah. All you got to do is put on one of his games from New England and see that it's it's not happening. And, and then yeah. and that was three years ago. That was 20. Yeah. And 21 at Carolina was bad. Um, so I was amused, but it's not going anywhere. And then I was no. told by top sources, you know, Kareem Hunt's not coming back. So, Terry, should he come back or not? As, talking about a ship sailing, uh, yeah. Kareem Hunt's stats, not great last year. I think he was ranked in, in the low 50s out of the 62 running backs yeah. by Pro Football Focus. Uh, 3.8 yards a carry. Um, t- time to move on and, and give Jerome Ford some, some snaps is what you're saying. Yeah, that's what they're saying, and I tend to agree. Now, I might have kept Ernest Johnson because he signed a very modest contract with Jacksonville. I think it's only like a hundred grand guaranteed and a million and a half. I always liked Ernest because Ernest could play special teams too. Uh, I might have kept him, but I heard they want they have some running backs lower in the draft. I don't know who they are that they like. Um, you know, they still have Demetri Felton, but I think that's that ship is taking on a lot of water too. Um, so that one's not. So they're going to be looking 
for someone else. But see, I would like to have uh, some sort of veteran back there because what if Chubb does get hurt? Yeah, I mean, you're going with Jerome Ford and then TBA after that. I mean, yeah. like you said, somebody late in the draft. Um, there's not a lot of depth in that room. It used to be they, really deep, and if they let Kareem Hunt go, there won't be. There's a guy, I don't know if he's still on the roster. I have to check. Remember Kelly from Tennessee? They liked him uh, in the past. Uh, I, my guess is if he's if they don't have him on the roster now, they could probably bring him in. But well, they'll find somebody. They'll find somebody. But I, I would, I like the earnest. I just thought he had a good attitude in that. And a lot of times, a player like Kareem, you know, remember last year, he had like the world's worst holdout where he only did individual drills and not team drills for like three days. But it also indicated that he, he wanted, you know, more. So, Terry, you were saying in one of your columns that you think Kareem Hunt projects out at a one-year deal for $4 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Browns needed someone, let's say they didn't find anybody in the draft they like, would you bring him back at one year on $4 million or not? Or is it just time to move on regardless? I, I'm, I'm ready to move on. I just am. Uh, now, if I were at another team where he could go get a fresh start in that, I think it'd be a good gamble. Um but I'm not even sure he's going to get that much, by the way. Uh, so, but I, but I would be just shopping for another running back. It's nothing against Kareem, but sometimes, I mean, the fact is Kareem's been frustrated here the last couple of years, especially as his contract started to come to a close and felt unappreciated, unappreciated and underused, underused, mm-hmm. all that. And then he just didn't look very good last year. He just didn't. And he's 27, which yep. is not far from 30, which seems to be the magic number analytically speaking. So, all right, Terry, not a lot of Browns news. Uh, the draft is coming up at the end of the month here in a couple of weeks. The Browns, of course, without a first round pick, but we did have some big news this week. Greg Newsom has announced his celebrity, I think it's Greg Newsom and Friends celebrity softball game mm-hmm. on June 24th at Classic Park for anybody who'd like to head out to that. And Didn't he, Jarvis it, used to do that? Yeah, he did. So Greg Newsom's yeah. taking over, but he did tweet. He wanted to let Jim Schwartz know he's he's only going to play the outfield, not the infield. <laughs> Just wanted to get that in before we move I on. That's right. And um, I'm fascinated to see what Schwartz does with that secondary, because now I was told we shall see that Schwartz's schemes for the secondary are much different and simpler than what Joe Woods was doing that there should not be as many breakdowns in coverage, and that Thornhill, the free safety they brought in, is a much better cleanup man than John Johnson when those things happen. John Johnson always would look to me like the confused traffic cop out there. It's like where the guy would be standing in the middle of like four lanes and three cars are coming at him at once, and he's, he's holding up hands and pointing, and nobody knows what's going on. And Yeah, in game 15. Oh, I know. Yeah. And it may not be. Maybe it was a scheme. I don't know. Has John Johnson signed anywhere yet? Uh, As of the other day, he had not. Yeah, that's a good question. We'll have to look that up. I don't think um, he has. So certainly his price has dropped quite a bit. And I don't think his film was all that great last year, to be honest. So no, we'll, I we'll mean, check the, that out. The, the film is because otherwise safe, some of the safeties have been getting paid. All right, Terry, you ready for some uh, Hey hey Terry questions for this week? All right, let me look up John Johnson real quick because I'm curious. Yeah, he's a free agent. Yeah, and so is your favorite defensive end, Jadavian Clowney. Clowney. Oh, 
who may not only be not playing on third down this year, but first and second, the way this one is going. <laughs> Do you realize what he, he really messed his career up? He really did. Now I want to bring up something there a little bit along those lines of, um, yes, Jim Schwartz is there to help the defense or whatever. But, you know, I, I think back about um, Clowney and the problems he was having with Woods and there. Stefanski just let that go. That comes into his territory. And they it, then, of course, it bubbled up. When, I mean, when the guy just, uh, Clowney just told Mary Kay all that and she taped the whole thing. Uh, you know, it was just, you know, it had been festering for a can while. Can you imagine that if that's yeah. what he told her into a tape recorder? Because remember, it was into a tape recorder, one of those little micro cassette things or whatever they are, uh, digital ones. And what is he saying when the tape recorder is not there in the locker room? Well, that's not going to help his cause, but I'll tell you, as we get later and later in toward training camp, someone will pick him up. Because oh, sure he's, they he's long, he can play the run, and he'll give you something. And even if it's just a one-year deal, I think he'll end up somewhere. Well, that's so. all he's going to get. But Yeah. So, yeah. All right, you ready? Here we go. Yes. All right. Um, this one is from Caleb Mackey, longtime listener of the podcast. He says, hey, Terry and David, my wife had an interesting discussion regarding the new pitch clock rules, and we would like to hear your input. My understanding of the rules is that a pitcher is allowed two disengagements per batter. I assume that means stepping off the pitching rubber, such as when they attempt the pickoff move to first. We were watching Zach Plesak pitch, and he tried his signature pickoff move twice in a row. We figured that the runner would simply take off on the next pitch because Plesak couldn't disengage again, and he didn't. After two disengagements, what's to stop the runner from taking off as soon as the pitcher becomes set? Is there some sort of rule that says the pitcher can disengage again if the runner attempts to advance? Your curious listener, Caleb Mackey from Columbus. Thanks for that, Caleb. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, and that's all it is. I believe you could do it a third time, but you have to get the guy out. Right. So the rule is the pitcher must go into his motion before the, the timer goes off. The pitcher is allotted two disengagements, which is a step-off or a pickoff attempt without penalty. A third disengagement will be ruled a balk unless an out is recorded on the basis, as in a successful pickoff attempt. So getting back to what Caleb asked, so if he had – stepped off the third time and thrown to first and the runner got back, it would be a balk and the runner would get to go to second. But if Caleb is suggesting the the runner took off, knowing that he didn't have any engagements left, he doesn't really gain anything. Like it would have needed to be the third one before you'd know for sure. Right. Is what would well, happen. No words, so the, the first two, so he takes off. Now the pitcher can back off and actually even run at the base runner. In fact, they tell, they tell you that, you know, if you feels like the guy gets caught in no man's land, don't just throw it to one or the other, just run at him, force him to make a move one way or the other. And then if you get him out, um, you do. And if he's back safe, by the way, then you're charged with a balk. Right. So, that, so that's it then. Basically it's like with a three, two count with, with two outs. Once yeah. you see the pitcher going his motion, you can go. It's kind of like that thinking. Mm-hmm. If the pitcher has three engagements, but not two, because on the third one, they could still pick you off and nothing bad happens if you're the pitcher. Or if you're the Yankees, you can just point to second base and send <laughs> the guy point. there and save all this two times, three times. You're, you know, you don't have to think as much. Just the guys on second base, let's go to the next hitter. That's right. The intentional steal. So, 
All right, this one is from Ed Cohen, and Ed says, Hey, Terry, I was pleased to see that the Guardians wore a patch in memory of John Adams on opening day, and again on the 50th anniversary of his starting his drumming at the old stadium, which is going to be in August, if I remember, August 24th. Mm -hmm. He says, Why are they not going to wear the patch throughout the season? There can't be more than a few people in franchise history who voluntarily contributed so much over so many years. At least in the beginning years, he was even paying for tickets. By all accounts, he comported himself with honor at the ballpark and away from it. Think of how many teams wear a patch all year and beyond in memory of rich owners who only got richer from the the appreciation of the value of a franchise. Thanks for the podcast. I listen regularly and have enjoyed Terry's reporting and columns for decades. Again, that's from Ed Cohen. Thanks for that, Ed. What do you think, Terry? Of course, I'm a bad one to ask since I was John Adams' pallbearer and all that. Of course, I would say it's a great idea, but it is a great idea. Uh, they seem to – I wonder if they're going to have several patches. I have to ask about that if they're uh, looking at just different marketing ploys. So, um, One thing we do know is they're putting a bronze version of a drum mm-hmm. right out in Heritage uh, Park is that in center field with all yeah. the other monuments. So that's going to be something that will be there forever. Um, but the patch, yeah, they're only doing it twice. It is an interesting decision. So – well, we'll find out. If we find out, we'll uh, we'll we'll report back on the podcast. So, well, now I Terry has a question for Dave. How do you feel about magnet schedules? I love magnet schedules. You bring them home. You put them on the fridge if you want to know when the game is. And you know the other thing you can do, Terry, when the season's over, you can take family photos and put them use the magnets for that and make little photo magnets out of it and you sound you like think? roberta she loves <laughs> magnet schedules and i was able to secure some the other night i think it's for a future promotion they have coming up because they had some available in the press box so uh and my not only roberta does but amanda rabinowitz who i do my npr commentaries with on wednesday she is a guardians fan a baseball fan and a magnet schedule fan very excited when she got hers we taped our uh, commentary today and was very excited about the magnet schedule roberta still has last year's magnet schedule and i think on the side of the fridge are a bunch of others i haven't looked um but i got a feeling some of the old ones are up there too oh yeah they're fun to collect so all right last one terry you ready yes this one is from Patrick in North Olmsted. He says, hey, Terry and Dave, big fan of the show, longtime listener, first-time writer. I was curious if you guys could talk about Brown's special teams real quick. Mm-hmm. Most fans probably remember the units with Phil Dawson and Josh Cribbs and have seen how big it is to hit a 50-plus yard field goal or have a big return or a blocked kick. I feel like the last couple of years, the Brown special teams have been really below average. Do you see Cade York improving in year two after a disappointing rookie year? What are your expectations for Jakeem Grant as a returner and Bubba Ventrone, any positions you think they might address in the draft to help with the special teams? Um, a couple of things. I thought Bacortes, um, the punter, was a big upgrade. I thought that was a really good move by Andrew Berry. Uh, they signed Michael Ford, who's considered a top, not Jerome Ford, but this is Michael Ford, considered a top special teams guy, coverage guy, blocking, all that. And they also signed a guy, Matt Adams, who was with the Bears. They brought in these two veterans to help on special teams. Jerome Ford showed me on kickoff that he was pretty good, and he could probably do punts. Now, Jaheen Grant is going to be has been good in the past, but uh, torn Achilles. As somebody who part ripped up one Achilles entirely, led to some massive surgery, and partially tore the other. Um, and yes, granted, I'm a sports writer and a bad athlete, but I could tell you they're nasty injuries. 
And so, especially for a guy who's a speed guy. So Grant's coming in, but he's got a lot to prove. You know, Bubba's had top 10 um, special teams things. Now, it's not quite a perfect uh, comparison, but Chase McLaughlin here in 2021 was the lowest ranked kicker in the NFL. He got picked up by uh, the Colts last year and was middle of the pack to slightly better. Now, it helped point kicking in the Dome in Indianapolis and that, but I also heard that Bubba did some good work with him. And I just think Cade York can kick. Cade York can do this. Uh, they just need to, to keep working with him and see. I agree. Um, so I'm, I'm upbeat on that. And you could make a lot of mistakes dumping out. I mean, Phil Dawson was cut three times by three different teams before he ever kicked in an NFL regular season game. Um, he was kicked, I want to say, uh, he was at New England. Pittsburgh just had him in for a one-day tryout, and I forgot the other team um, that had him in. It might have been his hometown Cowboys. But three times, and then the Browns, he barely made the team in 1999, where it's the famous line, I love it, where he finally is the last day of training camp, and they had some other kicker in, and Chris Palmer goes up to him, and, and, and Phil was so excited, thinking, I'm going to finally get, get a hug, pat on the back, something. You know, All this I've been through the last two years. And he looks at him and says, well, I guess we'll start with you. <laughs> inspiring words. So on that note, um, and I guess 12 years later, they when they stopped, they should have still been saying, I guess we'll start another year with you because they've <laughs> gone through all these kickers ever since. They've not had the same kicker for two full seasons since Phil's left. Well, just uh, on a larger theme here, Terry, the Browns special teams under Mike Prefer were ranked 18th in the NFL last year, according to Rick Gosselin's annual rankings. And just, you watch the Browns. That was one of its higher ones, I may add, by the way. Yeah, it was. And you you watch the special teams and it's like, number one, are the special teams helping the Browns win? Mm -hmm. And I don't think the answer was yes to that the last couple of years. I really don't. And then on top of that, is the special teams coach helping the special teams get better? And I don't think the answer to that was yes either. Um, and I think what you're going to see is that Bubba Ventrone is going to be a pretty integral part of this draft with them not having picks high. He's going to be in there like, hey, I want this guy for kick coverage. Mm-hmm. I want this guy for kick coverage. I want this guy for this role on, on special teams. I think he's going to be able to have a little bit more of a voice than maybe they've allowed the special teams coaches in the past to have. I can um, tell you this. And this goes to a conversation I had with Andrew Barry before the start of the 22 season. I can tell you that Barry has moved out of the sort of the analytics community on the subject of special teams that you could kind of throw them together and move more towards the Belichick, Mangini camp of no, these guys can be real difference makers. And that's why he drafted Cade York in the fourth round. And there were some other guys that they, you know, they brought. That's why I gave the mind to Jakeem Brandt. So, and he is still in that camp. This is why they went to get Ventrone. And so I believe they will be better, partly because the front office wants them better and is willing to spend the money to make them better. Now, let's not – I thought Donovan Peoples-Jones showed promise as a punt returner. So I like the fact you've got Ford, Jerome Ford, as a returner. you got D- DPJ and possibly Grant if he stays healthy. That's got to be an improvement. And, I mean, I think Kate, what Cade was the second or third worst 
kicker in the league. I doubt he does that again. So uh, let's see what happens. But there is a commitment to make it better. And there has to be, because as the Browns yeah. talk about all the time, the margin for winning and losing in this league is razor thin, and the special teams can put you over the top and make or a Or it cost you games. Which we've seen plenty of times. Yes, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. All right, Terry, that's going to do it. Anything else you want to bring up before we wrap it up here? No, my big concern was Magnus schedules, and you answered that question. <laughs> We should have a uh, Terry's Talking Magnet schedule created at some point. I've got enough of them on my refrigerator. (laughs) Well, when the the season passes, we'll we'll take some of the old ones from Roberta's and see if we can put some logos on it or something. uh, All right. Enjoy the uh, Cavs playoffs, Terry. And uh, you predicted the Cavs in in seven games. Why not? All right. We'll see how that goes. Game one is Saturday night. Enjoy that. And we'll catch you next time on Terry's Talking.